0: thanks to a room of a view and here we are on zero g science fiction fantasy and historical radio for episode number what episode are we at today we are at one one eight nine i am Rob Jan. Jan solo at the moment because our co-pilot, our co-captain Megan McHugh is on sabbatical and today's episode is entitled Bird is the Word. Our podcast title is No Pods because we shall be talking about the greatest Fantastic Four movie that I've ever seen which is actually The Incredibles number two. <laughs> well the second best if you like the f- original first if you can't handle the idea that a sequel might be superior to the original actually it flies alongside of it pretty much seamlessly stitched together actually so we're also going to have a look at the new android we'll call it a thriller movie body horror actually works as well too upgrade which was shot here in australia and uh, fairly good film it is too. I was uh, most impressed by it when I saw it on the weekend. And we'll have a look at Raymond E. Feist's new epic fantasy novel, King of Ashes, which is actually the first volume in an entirely new fantasy saga from Mr. Feist. So it's not midkemia, it's uh, not um, the Rift War saga or anything like that. It's, a, it's an entirely new fantasy world. That's pretty feisty of him to start that after 30-odd other novels set in the other world. But we'll have a look at that later on today in preparation for an interview with Mr Feist that we're hoping to bring to you next week, Uh, which I'm really looking forward to because we've chatted with Ray a couple of times before and it's been a while and I'd love to catch up with him. Anyway, now we are looking at The Incredibles number two which I uh, saw on the weekend and I re-watched director Brad Bird's 2004 original animated film to prep for it. Now, Inky 1.0 came out all of 14 years ago and it predates all 19 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's movies, uh, which of course are now the central body of work that is now the benchmark for the modern superhero movie genre. Uh, It's developed into the major popular movie genre of the 2010s as well. Director Brad Bird worked on animation for projects like The Black Cauldron and The Fox and the Hound before segueing into writing on the science fiction movie Batteries Not Included. And then he moved into directing with 1999's Iron Giant, another animated film. He's directed several live action films since including the hit Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and also the not so hitty Tomorrowland which I personally quite enjoyed. It's really the Iron Giant and Tomorrowland that reflects Bird's ongoing passion for retro futurism, especially that of the space age 1960s. And so, too, did The Incredibles number one, with its extravagant James Bond Ken Adams's production design mimicking Spy Fi villains' lair. It's John Barry like musical cues and homages to 60s architecture in general and also f- having a bit of a actually a quite a considerable quotient of family sitcomitis. It was an effortlessly effortlessly it's <laughs> a word that belies its meaning. <laughs> effortlessly nuanced blend of the superpowered and the mundane family-driven plot that any Fantastic Four movie would envy and indeed did as the 2005 Fantastic Four film, which was not a Marvel Studios one of course, uh, reportedly changed elements of its plot to avoid too close a parallel being drawn with the animated movie as well as giving additional stretch to the character of Mr Fantastic so the special effects of the live-action film wouldn't suffer by comparison to the animated one. Now, the highly energetic and light-hearted, edgy take on the domestic lives of former superheroes was a hit with Incredibles number one, and it surely influenced the tone of the MCU films to come. Incredibles 1 also preempted the MCU's focus upon the real world consequences of supers walking and, more litigiously, fighting amongst us and our cities. The family unit of the Incredibles, the husband and wife, the three kids, including a baby, were literally part, well, their name is Par, of a plethora of superheroes who were active back in the day. Collateral damage surrounding their adventures resulted in a public and government kickback, and superhero activity was made illegal. There are several other situations well explored in comic books, comic-inspired films and television series that reflect that too. Think Marvel's Civil War and the Sokovian Accords, the X-Men and their Mutant Registration Act, or the television shows, Heroes, Dark Angel and even The Stranger Things, just for a few examples. And it's vigorously pursued, as are the Inhumans in the Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series. Anyway, The Incredibles successfully plugged into and existing angst about metahumans which in the wake of the mcu and the dc universe is even more full of zesty zeitgeist resonance in 2018 for this excellent sequel the incredibles 2 and as much as the director brad bird tried to steer clear of the usual tropes well the context is pretty much unavoidable and you know even more Bittersweet. It's just a, a wonderful mixture. It fits into the times and flows in directly to all of the other superhero movies we've seen before, doing what cartoons were originally partly intended for, a bit of a caricature. Ah, well, mind you, Deadpool does that too, but perhaps not as family-friendly as this one does. Triple R is one of Australia's most distinctive media voices. We're an independent, not-for-profit community media organisation and a registered charity. All donations to R over $2 are tax-deductible. You can reduce your taxable income before the end of the financial year by donating throughout June. If you're interested in making a donation, email donations at rrr.org.au or call the R office on 9388 1027. We were talking about The Incredibles 2, ...the new sequel to the original Incredibles movie... ...all these years later, like uh, 14 years actually... ...and it is of course a Pixar film, CGI animation... ...I didn't actually see the 3D version... ...it's hard to find 3D versions of films sometimes... You know, often they'll only play like, um, unless it's a really big, massive, massive film. I'll give you one session a day at the multiplexes. But in this case, I, I didn't get to see the 3D one. And actually, it's kind of a pity I would like to see it again in 3D. Perhaps I will. So, it um, is directed and partly written by Brad Bird, who did the same duties on the first one. And what he's actually done is followed on precisely... ...at the end of the original one. So none of this updating... uh, ...giving us uh, like 14 years later or anything like that. It is basically bam. So it actually helps if you watch the first one... ...and then toddle off to the cinema to see the second. It's one of those ones where you'll benefit from having a running start... ...with a bit of pre-knowledge. I don't know how you'd fare if you watch this one... ...without having seen the original at all. That's... uh, a uh, Frozone that I can't actually get my head around. I guess it would make sense because they do give you enough encapsulation of the, uh, the backstory to be going on with. And actually one of the strange things about this is it's a little bit similar to the story of the first one in that, well, as we were saying before, the superhero characters are all living now underground not off the grid because they're actually in a kind of a, a superhero protection program as a reward for all those years of crime fighting where they did have some effect even if they have been driven into illegality as actual superheroes now the government in the united states i'm assuming at least is at least looking after them in this superhero protection program uh, finding providing cover identities and um, and cover jobs for the superheroes now that they can't rely upon their powers to get on by. Actually, I don't know if they would have been able to rely upon their powers to make a living anyway because usually people who do that kind of thing end up being supervillains. And did what happened? Did the supervillains just stop? Uh, was it as they said in uh, um, Civil War, I think, or um, was it uh, a matter of escalation every time a super shows up, a supervillain does? Hmm, interesting thought to explore, but we don't go there really in The Incredibles 2. Uh, it is actually quite nuanced in the way it approaches it, but the main gimmick in this one, or I suppose the trope that they're exploring is the stay-at-home dad, which is Mr. Incredible, because uh, there is a, a, a group that approaches the family, the Pa family, our little um, superhero family unit, to help reintroduce supers in a legal sense into the public eye. So they want to actually try and kickstart a new wave of capers, as it were. Well, they don't actually choose Mr Incredible to figurehead this particular new wave. They choose his wife, Elastigirl. And... They do that almost flawlessly. There's no, not a whole lot of angst on Mr Incredible's part about that. They just move into that. Okay, he, he really would like to be the guy out there because he has been in the past and he's actually quite competitive with the girl and so is she with him. ...in their superhero guises. Be that as it may, though, he does man up and become the babysitter of choice. And it's not just him either. The family has to help as well. The teenage girl, the young boy... ...and, well, helping is not exactly the operative word for the baby Jack-Jack... ...since he is the subject of the babysitting. As you may recall from Incredibles 1... ...he turns out to have inherited superpowers too. Not just one, but multiple powers uh in that um, adorable way that babies are often able to do lots of different things until they learn better <laughs> uh, and that's a lot of the humor in this tale stems from the interaction between um, mr incredible and his child and trying to juggle the family responsibilities that Elastigirl has formerly been in charge of so that's the story, basically. The people who they run into who want to give them a, a new start in the superhero life are from a telco company called DevTech, <laughs> a rich telco company. And they, the people who are brought to the mix who are new in, in there, the two voice actors, because, of course, this is an animated film, uh, Bob Odenkirk, better call Saul from Breaking Bad and his own show, Uh, is the, uh, uh, not exactly the patriarch, but the male of the brother and sister team that run DevTech. That seems to be a thing at the moment. Brothers and sisters who are in charge of companies in motion pictures. Uh, What was the last one? Uh, Rampage in The Rocks, um, Keiju movie. And Catherine Keener plays his sister, who's the technological genius, Behind the telco company and quite content to be that particular character since she thinks that she does all of the real work in the character and that her brother is just a marketer. There's actually quite a good um, bit of sense in that too and we have the inevitable supervillain. as you recall from the end of the incredibles one they were dealing with the underminer who's very much like the mole man in a pointed dig from the fantastic four series uh, of comic books and also we've got a new villain called um, screen slaver now that's a character who's right to the moment in terms of speaking to our black mirrorish addiction to screens. Although, actually, they downplay mobile phones' um, utility in this story. I'm not even sure if they actually have them from memory. Uh, okay, so um, a couple of other people who appear in the voice cast. Isabella Rossellini plays the ambassador. Who's um, a, a uh, I think perhaps possibly uh, Ivory Unite not United Nations or similar um, dignitary who comes to talk about the problem the ongoing problem of supers, but is more sympathetic than it turns out. So there's a lot of things in this film that I really loved, and as I was saying before, really love the soundtrack on this one. The Movie Incredibles 2 rattles along at a pretty good pace and the super action rivals live action superhero movies quite effectively, (coughs) I thought at least. So, I wonder what uh, would happen if they were to mix it up (coughs) with the Incredibles and, say, the Avengers. (laughs) And you don't actually have to wait too much in the film before the thought of creating a new super team manifests itself. And I thought that was all to the good because they needed a, a bit of a recharge in some areas of the uh, the mix there. And so this proves. Now, there are some moments in the film that really got to me, like these are um, animation, animation uh, tropes that they played with along the way, Um Giant ships, monorails, retrofuturism as I was saying uh, earlier on in the piece. And there is a a motel heated pool so atmospherically rendered that you can smell the chlorine and feel the non-slip tiled edges under your bare feet. They really did a great job with that. There's Frank Lloyd Wrightish houses, because you have to have a futuristic smart house in a film like this. And pff, deliberate references to the Outer Limits and Johnny Quest. And some of those are actually woven into the plot, as well as tons of other 1960s and a few 50s um, pop culture Easter eggs thrown in for good measure. Uh, the Voice acting once again is spot on. I mean, you can't really go past um, Bob Odenkirk playing uh, one of the um, the owners of the telco, uh, and also of course the the main actors. I think they did change out one the um, the one who plays uh, Dash, the young boy, because the. Um, uh, the voice actor who's playing him's grown up quite a bit since then. In fourteen years, of course, uh, Brad Bird does reprise his voice acting role as Edna Mode, the fashion designer who um, takes her leaf from Dame Edith Head. Uh, when I say Dame Edith Head. Well, anyway, from Edith Head and. Um, Other people too, one of the editors of Vogue amongst others and a few others but uh, he does the voice for that once again and it's actually you spend your time a little bit in um, anticipation of that character reappearing. She is, of course, the Super's costume designer with her famous knock-ups... Uh, mantra which is designed to protect the superheroes it's a good thing uh, tony stark as iron man doesn't actually have a cape either because i could just imagine that getting sucked into his jet boots it would be this sort of like a uh, almost like a um oh a, a, a mobius strip as he sort of gets ...pulled inside his own suit by the... Oh my God, let's not go there. Anyway, uh, yeah, I thought the the film is a very, very worthy sequel... ...to The Incredibles, Incredibles number one. Uh, if you like the first one, you are going to enjoy it. If you have enjoyed all of the other superhero films... ...and that's a powerful lot in between 2004 and now, then you'll be able to get something out of this as a satire as well and a caricature. Uh, But in any case, it's energetic, it's lively, it's funny in a lot of places. Uh, It probably – it played even quite well to me. I don't have kids but I understand the tropes of having kids and, you know, I grew up in a family with other kids so uh, that to me, that particular part, the whole parental thing was quite hilarious. Uh, I just don't think this film really puts a foot wrong, basically. It is The Incredibles 2. It's by Brad Bird. He's the director and one of the writers. And, well, you know, I would give this a zero G rating if I had to go, yeah, nah, or maybe I'd go, heck yeah. This is a good film to watch. The Incredibles number two. This is Kim Stanley Robinson, author of Red Mars, Green Mars and Blue Mars. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Yeah, you are. And that was, here comes Elastigirl. And there she goes, stretching a point. They actually have a really neat trick in um, Incredibles 2 where she is able to uh, split her um, Elastigirl vehicle in half and stretch in between it. Works quite well. Ah. (laughs) I so mourn the Fantastic Four movie that could have been. Oh, well onwards and upwards to infinity and beyond. Now, uh, we wanted to talk about next a, a book called King of Ashes, which is actually the, um, oh, not the squeaky thing. Maybe they should have they uh, uh, should have done a little bit more with Elastigirl there because I think she's getting a bit squeaky there. The rubber just stretches to a certain point and then it snaps. Anyway, King of Ashes. Uh, now, this is... Um, a new Raymond E. Feist book. It's the first book in the Main saga and it's volume one, of course, being the first book, which is fairly obvious. I cannot tell you how strange it is to be reading a Raymond Feist book that is not part of his Rift War series, uh, not part of that particular universe, because he's done about 30 odd books in it but I'm up for that I can go back to the days of uh, oh my god all the way back to say um, that standalone book fairy tale which uh, is not set in those universes either and so here we are with king of ashes now I'm looking forward to having a chat with Raymond Feist and um, we'll do that next week 0g Um because I really want to ask him the question, why after setting things in these other universes you've so richly created and delineated over the years since 1992, why a new universe suddenly? Uh, That's the question I really want to put to him when I talk to him. Anyway, for now, uh, this book is a robust start to an epic fantasy series. I'll give you a bit of a background on it. Um, it's set on a, a planet called Garn, G-A-R-N. Uh, it's a, it is a whole new world and um, the world building here is, as usual, excellent. The story is that there are five great kingdoms of Garn, two great continents, uh, an ice cap to the north. But think about, um, say, the United States and, say, say, North and South America, if they weren't actually joined and if there was a, a massive um, straits area between them that narrows down to a couple of strategically important choke points along the way. Like the Panama Canal, writ very large indeed. Uh, And that's the, the situation here. There are five kingdoms there whoever has control of that those choke points, the narrows between the two segments of the continent, uh, well, you know, obviously you could get be quite um, elevated as a kingdom if you were in charge of that, which is why they have a covenant, uh, a neutrality agreement that basically says that no one kingdom can control that area. It's a neutral area. Uh, there's no warfare supposed to be going on there. And this area has become quite important in terms of... Uh, being an artistic and cultural and trade and uh, all sorts, you name it, it, whatever aspect of the socio-political environment you can name, that area is a melting pot of it all and actually doing quite well up until one king gets too ambitious and decides to fit up the a neighbouring king with uh, an accusation of being too ambitious and isn't that always the way? The people who are the most evil tend to use, that, reflect that upon other people as the motive that they're going to use to frame them, to bump them off and he's aiming this at the, uh, the kingdom of, um, uh, is it Ithaca? I had trouble pronouncing this when I went through it myself because uh, I, kept, I kept thinking in my head, Ithaca, you know, from, um, from the Odyssey and, uh, well, it's not that. But anyway, uh, it doesn't really matter much because the, it's the Ithracia, Ithracia, that's it, uh, and the Ithracian kingdom is the target of skullduggery and Machiavellian machinations by the other four kingdoms which decide to wipe it out put an end to the royal line in an act of betrayal that totally upends 200 years of peaceful, relatively, relations between the kingdoms and also all of the uh, associated free barons and so on who are not actually affiliated with the main kingdoms. Uh, We move on in the story. They have scoured the royal line, root and branch, uh, or have they... There is a surviving baby child from the Main dynasty. As you can guess, the main royal line have ginger hair and this wee little child is spirited away to be fostered out amongst the invisible nation, which is to say... The group of people who largely resemble the Sicilian Mafiosa or Assassins or you name it. There's quite a few uh, uh, underground organisations that seem to have inspired the Invisible Nation. And the character is named Hattachali and he grows up in this group trying to make his way in life he will intersect with doubtless other characters in this story who are established in the first book including a young blacksmith who is in uh, in charge of making the king's sword the new king's sword i would imagine one day i'm just guessing but that's why you would introduce the smith and also there are other characters who enter his orbit as we go along It's extremely well written as you'd imagine for anything that's by Raymond E. Feist He's been doing this a while. He knows how to spin a good yarn. It's full of rich detail The world building is first class Uh, There are hints of some supernatural doings going on and some non-human characters which appear in the narrative eventually. It has have his quirky sense of humour as well. Some situations which would play out fairly straight in other epic fantasy stories turn out to have rather different ends. I remember chatting with Ray a while ago, many years ago, when we were talking about one of his other novels and commenting upon how one of his major characters met an untimely end by being accidentally skewered with a crossbow bolt fired by one of his own men, who stumbled and the, uh, the crossbow went off. I didn't know it was loaded. Uh, so he's that kind of writer who will throw you a curve suddenly just to, f- just to take you off the, uh, the trope. Uh, the dialogue is good. I found this a very easy read to, to get through and I've been quite enjoying it and I look forward to the rest in his new fantasy series and I want to know why. I have to ask him, why are you doing a new series? Maybe that question answers itself. Why a new series? Because it's new. This is Raymond E. Feist, King of Ashes, The Fireman Saga, Volume 1. It's a Harper Voyager trade, sorry, hardback, not a trade paperback, a hardback. It's out now. From the ashes of war, a king must rise. Must he? musty. <laughs> that's an interesting trope really when you think about it, taking the the king or the nobleman or noblewoman, uh, taking them from riches to rags. And it's a traditional trope too, that's why it's a trope. And it's one of the th- reasons I think that we tend to see that a lot in fantasy especially is because it means that you've got someone who can be taken down a peg or two and who can live a life that we the common folk can identify with i think that's probably the main reason why you get that trope apart from the fact that you need a story arc of one kind or another but it does mean that you can identify with a person at least a little bit they're not just a king who you don't just say ah well they deserved everything they got the filthy rich bastard But in this case, I think that the the trope is going to have a few different variations upon it if I know Roman Feist's work. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero-G. We wanted to look at Upgrade, which is a science fiction movie set in Australia. Not really, but uh, let's say shot in Australia, that works better. Uh, it's um, one of those ones that actually seems like a bit of every towny sort of films. It's a science fiction body horror film directed by Australian Lee Wanell, and uh, he's. Uh, a guy who's a bit of an all-rounder as you often tend to be in the Australian film industry, screenwriter, producer, director and actor. Done a lot of acting actually in a lot of genre shows and we know him for working with James Wan who did Saw in 2004. Uh, He's also been on Dead Silence, Insidious and... Did his first film, Insidious Chapter 3, or directed, that is, in 2015. So Upgrade's actually his second feature. Uh, Al is one of the creators of the profitable Saw franchise, which I don't personally care for, uh, but that's all right. you know. I, I was going to say different strokes for different folks, but that's probably entirely inappropriate when you're talking about the Saw franchise. Uh, and um, he also co-wrote uh, Cooties in 2014. Now, this film is a, let's say, an AI trope film. Um, That has been the flavour of the decade alongside of uh, superheroes in science fiction movies. We've had an awful lot of movies where we've had AIs feature in it. This one is, um, we'll go with cyborg, that's probably the correct term for this. Android kind of works as well. Uh, No, we'll go with cyborg, that's better, actually. Uh, Although there are some elements of um, android phobia that pop up in this. Uh, The story is quite simple. Uh, Grey Trace, which is a hell of a name for a character, played by... Uh, American actor Logan Marshall Green and we've actually seen him before in films that feature androids like uh, Prometheus Uh, and he was also one of the villains in Spider-Man Homecoming I think the guy who played the shocker anyway Logan Marshall Green uh, has the unfortunate happenstance in this film to be badly injured in a vehicle accident Related <laughs> injury that occurs to him makes him a quadriplegic. Uh, there is a fix for that, this being a science fiction film. It's a little beastie called STEM, uh, which is able to interface with his neural system and enables him to walk again. Now, that sounds like we're in Six Million Dollar Man territory and uh, Robocop territory. Actually, it reminds me a bit of um, Verhoeven's Robocop because it is quite a violent movie. Um, coupled with a few other tropes that we just let through to the keeper because we don't need to go there. Anyway, this uh, stem character who is voiced by Simon Maiden, another Australian actor, uh, takes him over to the extent that when he needs to develop certain skills the stem will be able to step in for him quite literally into his body and control it and provide those skills for different occasions this is a vengeance based film and so you can imagine how useful something like that will be in the course of his pursuit of certain characters i'm not going to tell you too much about that because that will play out when you watch the film Now we also have uh, Betty Gabriel, an American actress who we saw in Get Out playing a police detective. We've also seen her in Westworld and The Purge and Beyond Skyline and she has actually a pretty good role as a detective who is trying to figure out what's going on especially in relation to the character who's supposed to be a quadriplegic but shows some remarkable abilities to get himself into trouble uh, and she wonders why, given his situation. Now, we've also got um, Harrison Gilbertson playing Eron Keane, who's kind of a a fairly clichéd sort of uh, introverted technical genius and that's a bit of a... um, sadness there once again we've got that old trope in fact he lives in an underground uh, marvel smart house that could almost have been taken out of any number of ai based sort of films uh I do you remember him when he played um the young characters in beneath hill 60 got an afi award for that too anyway uh we've got um Richard Cawthorne playing uh, another pivotal character. And he's been in a lot of theatre and film in TV here in Australia. And I think the um, the acting in here actually works quite well in terms of fitting the characters, um, spinning up the dialogue. And the dialogue's not particularly magnificent, but it does manage to nail all the high points, especially with Simon Maiden playing the, uh, the voice.